Welcome back to Green Living Podcast. I am here with Elaine Butler, who was a guest on season one. Hello, Elaine, and thank you so much for agreeing to be a guest again. Oh, I'm delighted. Thanks very much for having me, Claire. I know that you mentioned that you did a master's program regarding the circular economy, and I'm really interested to learn more about that. Yeah, um, this was a scholarship opportunity that came up here in Ireland and I had worked in furniture design and exhibition design and interior design for longer than I'd like to think about um, but it was really hard I, I'd left it when the recession hit Ireland and I had kids and I w- missed design but I couldn't see how to go back to it because there's an awful lot of waste involved particularly in interior architecture or interior design Um, And then my husband actually saw this advertisement for a scholarship and the program was a master's in product design for the circular economy. So I applied for it thinking I wasn't going to get it. So I was delighted when I was awarded the scholarship, which I've just finished the master's in January of this year. Um, So it was about over um, 18 months, 16 or 18 months. And it really was looking at how we could approach product design differently. And even though I'm not a product designer per se, I looked at furniture, that's what I decided to focus on. Um, And how can we make furniture so that it sits into the circular economy, which is what you're hearing governments and environmental organizations talking about a lot now. And the circular economy, they hope, is going to be the savior of the Western way of living while achieving sustainability and in very simple terms what the circular economy is is keeping materials in use for as long as possible um, extracting the maximum value out of them before they're sustainably disposed of so that is what it is now doing that in such a way that you're still able to generate profit and you're able to deliver something that's of value to the customer, that's where the art comes in. That's where the Uh, art of design comes in. Yeah, well, design, but also it's design and business model because there's been a lot of very sustainable products made and one might say circular, but if they're not what the customer is looking for, they don't deliver anything of added value to the customer because convenience is such a seductive mistress and so if you're asking somebody to do something that maybe is a little more expensive or requires a bit more effort then they need to be getting something for that trade-off and I think that that's where a lot of you might have a beautifully designed product but it just doesn't get traction in the market because the business model it sits in is just too difficult to use. Um, So a perfect example would be reusable cups. Well, this is my feeling, reusable cups. I have a reusable cup, coffee cup, a lot of people do, um, but they're not the norm. And, you know, it's for many reasons that people aren't using reusable cups. They have to remember to bring them, which is one thing, um, and put them in their bag, or they might be bulky if you don't have one of the collapsible versions, you know, so they carry them around. And then some people like the way that the single-use 
paper cups keep their coffee hotter than the ceramic cups. The ceramic cups in a cafe are reusable, so you don't even have to remember to use the reusable or to bring a reusable cup. And it just goes to show that a really simple solution that works very well and is affordable and doable and accessible doesn't get traction because convenience and the value of a hot coffee drink overrides it. Um, and so now we're seeing a business model set up where, I don't know, I think that they do exist in some places in America. Um, you might get a reusable coffee cup with your coffee in one cafe and you pay a deposit to use it. And it might be, it depends on the company that the cafe is signed up with. It could be a euro or it could be six euro. It's six euro for a stainless steel one and a euro for a plastic one. And then you take it away and then you can drop it back into that cafe or into another cafe that's participating. So it really needs to happen in a cluster of them. Otherwise, it doesn't work. So it's quite good for things like college campuses or, you know, um, even corporate campuses, you know, where there's a large site with multiple outlets. And you get your deposit back when you drop off the reusable cup. So therefore, you don't have to remember it. Um, you might have you have to make the drop off points easy. But that's an example of a circular product that sits in a circular business model. Uh, and that's something that is essential in the circular economy. There's no such thing as a circular product. There's a circular uh, system that a product sits in. And often that system has added services that you would get that you might not get with just standalone buying something, you know, and you're now the owner and there's nothing after that, you know, whereas in these product as a service business models, you might get updates, you might get repair services for free, you might get to trade it in, you know, so there's there's added advantages maybe to buying into that circular system that there wouldn't be in a linear system, as we call it, which is where you just buy something, use it and dispose of it. Any business that doesn't add value to the customer and doesn't fit in with their needs is not going to thrive or exist for very long. And I think that in the past, there has been a focus on delivering sustainable or green products that in themselves are less harmful, but without paying a lot of attention to whether they're going to be accepted in the market. And I think we've seen time and time again, they don't get accepted. Now, some people will argue that we need to change legislation to make, to improve that acceptance. And I, that is one route, but legislation is a very long process and we know we're running out of time. And so legislation is one route, but it's not the only route. If we can do things through a business model, it's usually quicker delivery at the end of the day um, but it's a, it's a positive action rather than legislation where you ban something or you levy something, make quite a negative action. And uh, I know governments aren't keen to do that because it makes them unpopular and people won't vote for them. In your opinion, does a circular economy include affordability and inclusiveness? Well, it can do, but I mean, it's like anything. It's a tool and it depends on what you use that tool for. It is one approach to delivering sustainability. But like everything, you can do it in a way that is exclusive and really expensive. And I think we've seen in the zero waste community, you know, if you want to, you can spend a fortune on buying things to help you to avoid waste. And if you don't, you just use a jam jar if you happen to have, you know. So there's different ways of approaching it. 
And I think with the circular economy, the challenge for companies really is everything is set up on the linear economy basis. And it is really hard for them to pivot because if you're used to getting your revenue when you sell an item, then it's really hard to switch to another model where you might be, it might be a rental system, a leasing system, or a take back system. So let's say you're instead of getting paid 100 euro at the point of sale, you're now getting 10 euro over 10 months. And so your whole financial structure needs to be able to accommodate that. And then if you're doing buyback or take back, then you'll have to plan to have the money to buy back that item after a set period of time. So you need different accounting instruments to do it. And at the moment, because everything that's new is expensive, one, people don't know how to do it. And there's not a lot of case studies of successful companies in the circular economy. There's a few, but there aren't, you know, they might exist, but there's also somebody has to have gone and studied them and had access to their financial accounts and companies don't want to share that. So it is really hard for companies who are trying to pivot to get access to this information. Um, and so they're having to put a lot of time and effort into it. So that is quite expensive for companies. And so that has a knock-on effect. And they are hoping that there's enough people who care enough to pay the extra to invest in something that's more sustainable. But like a lot of things, you know, reusable coffee cups were really expensive when they first came in, to use them as an example again. But now you can pick them up for a few euro and there's quite a lot of secondhand ones in charity shops or unused ones in charity shops. So, you know, over time, like somebody was asking me the other day, what does a circular city look like? And I said, well, apart from there being more public transport, it actually probably won't look any different because we'll just be so used to, it'll just slot into the way we operate. We may change our behavior slightly, but if you have a takeaway coffee cup that you're able to drop off somewhere instead of you owning it permanently, then that's not going to make a huge impact on your life. If you were able to drop clothes that you no longer want to the store that you bought them from so they can resell them, that's not going to make a huge impact to your life. You might not own a car. You might just pay as you go, which I know a lot of people are doing now and the same with bikes. And so it's funny, we'll get used to it very easily. And there are some, like I think the bike sharing schemes, and the car sharing schemes, they've started to show proof of concept and, and be profitable in themselves. So it is beginning to happen, but it's like at what price point is it economically viable for the company? And if it's not about affordable it's of value to the customer because affordability is such a wide scale what's affordable to me might not be affordable to you and vice versa and i'm a big proponent of uh, like in ireland we're much more you know we would be more of a socialist country than maybe america would be so um my view of affordability is it's or it's not so much affordability it's accessibility and accessibility is down, is the government's job so, I mean, it, you shouldn't have a society where people can't afford to live a decent standard of living. I mean, if you, if you have a country like that, then the government aren't doing their job. Now, I know that's a socialist ideal, and this is the thing. Circular economy gets all wrapped up into politics and stuff like that. Um, but if people... So, and the thing is, if you price everything, 
for the least well-off person, then it's a race to the bottom. So in any form of manufacture, or even with food, I think food's a really good example. Food should not be cheap. I don't know who decided food should be cheap. It should not be cheap. It should be affordable to most people at a price point that the producer can make a reasonable living. And for all of those who can't afford it, it is up to the government to provide them access to it and to change the laws so that they go from getting access to being able to afford. So I think there's, it's really hard to separate out the politics and the worldview from that affordability and inclusive aspect of the circular economy. But like, like I said at the beginning, it's just a tool. It can be used in the right way and it can be used in the wrong way. And there has been some research done about the impact of some circular business models, such as clothing rental. And when you take into account the carbon emissions from you know, posting or delivering clothing, it was actually a jeans rental company that was looked at in a study that I was reading recently. And when you take into account the carbon emissions of posting or delivering those jeans to the user, that actually the person would be better off buying a pair of jeans and just wearing them to death mm. than engaging in a jeans rental. But this is the thing with any sustainability act. It's sustainability is dependent on what you compare it to. So if that person isn't the type of person to buy a pair of jeans and wear it to death, but really that's a mute argument. It doesn't make any sense. But I do think that that sort of thing should be looked at because sometimes we assume that reuse models or repair models or designing for longevity are circular in themselves, you know, because you use less materials. But if the market or the customer wants novelty and wants to change frequently, then there's no point in making something durable or reusable. And, you know, it's, and I think the great thing that's happening now in sustainability and in conversations around a circular economy is in the past, environmentalism was very niche and it generally was in the realm of the environmental activists and the scientists. And now you're getting business involved. And so they're bringing the weight of all that marketing and PR expertise to the argument, to the, to the movement of reducing our consumption. I think that's really interesting to see how they tackle it because they're experts at it and we need them on board if we want to get customer buy-in. Um, and also they're great at, I think, working out the nuance of how to do something. So it goes from um, a sacrifice to an enhancement. And I think that's been missing from the discussion really up until recent years. That's really interesting. And I totally agree. I, I completely agree about the um, expert marketing coming into it because at the end of the day, it's psychology and it's learning new habits and it's changing, but that is what marketing and that's what advertising does. It's psychology and being able to, yes, maybe put a positive spin on it or yes, so showing the enhancement that it can bring to your life because that's what any mascara that's what any thing that isn't necessarily you know sustainable is they're trying to advertise is that this will add value to your life but when it can add value to your life as a person you think oh yes and then it can add value to the planet is the the crux of it i think i think yes 
And I think that it's most successful in getting people to switch to more sustainable products. I think it'll be a real test of their expertise to get people to consume less because that's the crux of the circular economy, consuming less. Now, you could argue that remanufacturing something or upcycling it is a way of handling that novelty that people need so that we're consuming less materials overall, but in, as individuals, we're not buying less things. I'm not sure that that's actually going to deliver the sort of carbon savings that we need, but it would be interesting to see whether that can be marketed to people successfully and whether businesses want to, because a lot of businesses are still invested in selling as many widgets as possible. And so um, I think they're beginning to dip their toe into circular business models. You're seeing IKEA have now got furniture buyback service and then they'll sell it secondhand. But if they're selling to customers that wouldn't have bought their products anyway, then that's a good thing. But if the person is just changing their furniture more frequently because this buyback service um, exists, then that's not sustainable and we don't want to do that. So I think we're on a learning curve. I mean, the pro problem is that we're starting it so late. And really, I'm afraid that we're getting so close to the edge of the cliff that really none of this will matter because we just can't make the changes that we need to. Uh, we could see like during COVID when everything slowed down, the carbon savings savings were actually quite minimal mm. oh they weren't as big as people were expecting and i think a lot of that was to do with people were still buying but also like our energy generating systems that we have in place are generating a lot of carbon and even though there was less transportation that's where a lot of the savings were were in transportation but all of the other systems that run to keep our world turning are very carbon intensive and so um you know, not to be negative, but, you know, like I think circular economy is the best hope we have. Uh, whether we'll get to grips with this quickly enough to be able to save humanity, I don't know. I'm hoping, but I don't know. And during your master's program, what key aspects did you take away from it? I think the biggest thing I learned was that you can't design standalone products anymore, which is how product and furniture design and all of that is set up at the moment. A designer may work with other experts and other um, professionals in designing a product like engineers or manufacturers or material suppliers. But once it's designed and once it's manufactured, it's gone. You know, that the door is closed. Whereas now designers really have to know how materials are handled at the end of life how materials are repaired. And so you have to widen that pool of collaboration. So, you know, if you have a composite material, you have to talk to somebody who is going to recycle that and ask them how they separate it, uh, if, you know, if, they, if it's possible to be separated and how they'll do it. And you might find that the only person who does that is on the far side of the world. And is it does it really make sense to make a product with a component that may have to be shipped across the world? to be recycled and if the, if that doesn't make sense then maybe you design it to be incinerated you design it with less toxins in it so that it's incinerated that the, it's, it's not as damaging and so you have to understand the 
recycling and the incineration process as well. And then you may design something to be repaired, but it can only be repaired using specialist equipment or something like that, which is not accessible to people. And this is a product that could be designed for a country that doesn't have a great infrastructure of repairs, which I'd say Ireland is one of them. And so it's not a sustainable product if you're putting it out into the into the market that doesn't have the wherewithal or the structures of infrastructure to be able to ensure that it is used and disposed of as intended. And so it's the systemic um, view of a product and also that business model. And so having to work with people who understand financing and business models and accounting models and how, uh, like having conversations with, well, okay, if we design this, that it can be upgraded how much do we need to charge for the upgrading to make it worth our while? And then factoring that into the design process. So it's a lot more involved than it would have been. And I do, the design education system is not set up for it. Um, one thing I, I just think that the, the lecturers, this is new to them and they're not experienced enough in it to be able to teach it. And so the poor design students are coming out, not being equipped with it. And it, because it's some, it's a different way of approaching things and it's a bit of a, a paradigm shift, you really only get good at it by doing it over and over again so that you start to see things differently and you start to, like, for instance, I saw a really good project where they redesigned a toaster and at different price points. And one was for longevity and ultimate recyclability. And then one was for repair. But they acknowledge that labor costs to repair it. And this is thing like if you're designing something for the overdeveloped world where labor is really expensive versus the developing world where labor is relatively inexpensive, then you might design a different uh, product. So this one of their editions of the toaster was for the overdeveloped world. And they used fixtures that when heated pop. And so basically you would just heat the toaster, not hugely, but then the, the plastic that they used in the, uh, at the point of fixing expanded and then the shell of the to toaster just popped off. And so therefore you were using heat to do what a human hand would do maybe in another country. And so it's just being aware of the market that you're designing for as well. And so that, that sort of innovation, you you would only get that insight by looking at products with a circular mindset time and time again, because it's quite simple when someone says it to you, but can you imagine looking at a toaster and thinking, how do I design this to be repairable in a country where labor costs are really high? But that's, I think design students need time to do that over and over again. And in my experience, the design, design education system, well, in Ireland, I, I think it's different in, in Europe, I think Europe is a lot further ahead, particularly Northern Europe, but in Ireland, it definitely is behind the curve and we need to start educating our designers to think in a more circular way as soon as they walk in the door on day one. Would there even be a need for a toaster for people or being able to combine different products together? Well, yes. And I mean, sometimes when you combine products, you're reducing the overall use of resources, but other times you're making two good products 
behave, perform less well. Uh, and then sometimes as well, people will replace the, what they have to have the newer version. So people replacing their camera and their dumb phone in order to have a smartphone that has both combined into it. And so in theory, you'll say, okay, well, you should only replace it when you need to. But we know humans don't work like that, you know. <laughs> a new in invention comes along. And that's the other thing about being a designer. There's a huge amount of responsibility because as soon as you create a new model of something or a new edition of something, you're generating waste and you're, you're generating desire for the new thing. And so I don't think that we're as in control of it as some people might suggest, because when you have bills to play, pay and you have clients who are asking you to do this, it can be... No, you still need to put food on the table, but you can maybe sort of nudge the conversation in that direction. Again, it's whether we're nudging quickly enough with the time that we've left. And that's where legislation will come in, which will force it. But again, whether it'll do it in enough time. So I think that when it comes to design and our impact and our ability to really push the agenda of the circular economy, it's sort of everybody has to get on board because designers can, might be able to show the way. And the designers that will be graduating in four years time, like if they start today, they're going to come into a world where in theory, people are buying less stuff. And so how do you get jobs in an economy where people buy less stuff? Um, and so that's going to be very challenging for them. So I. I it's like everything. We should have started years ago. If we started years ago, then the design colleges would be in a good position. But if somebody was interested in this, I definitely think that they should look at um, the universities in Northern Europe, particularly TU Delft. Um, where are they? I think they're in Denmark. Um, but they're really, they're doing cutting edge work. Like they're doing fantastic work. Um, if you have people Google it, they'll find the colleges that are working on this. And I would suggest if you really, somebody was really interested, then attending those universities would be the best way to go rather than trying to do it in a country that's really not up to speed yet. Go, go where the progress is happening. Where the... Yeah, I do think so, because I think there's going to be, I, I mean, I've set up a consultancy now offering circular design services um, and it's helping companies to transition to the circular economy and it's great to see businesses are really interested and they know this is coming down the track this is the thing um, it can get very depressing working in the area of individual action because i don't think people are moving quickly enough at all uh, but businesses know that coming down the road is the carbon tax and they're already experiencing shortage of materials and they know it's going to happen so there's a, it's an awful lot more positive in that sphere, which is great. And there's a real hunger for this sort of guidance and information because there's so few people, well, there's so few people in Ireland who know about it and, and know how to do it. But it's the same in a lot of countries. I would say like Northern Europe and uh, would probably, there's more people to choose from in that area if people were looking for consultancy. But it's actually a really growing area if somebody wanted to specialise in it now because there's so few people who are operating in it. And because it's a paradigm shift and it requires a different mindset, it's the type of thing that you can't just read a pamphlet on it or a leaflet, go to a few events and suddenly you know about it. You really have to delve into it and start practising with that mindset to get good at it. And so... 
that means there's not going to be a lot of people who are good at it because it's not something that's really easy to pick up, which I would argue with sustainability, it can be a little bit easier to find out how to, to be more sustainable than it is to work in the circular economy. Because as I said, it's not so much just designing for the circular economy, it's designing or making or building a business that's of value to the customer, that's also circular. And how you do that, is really skillful so there's not going to be a lot of people who can do that well that would be my feeling about it and it's been my experience to date i think that it's a bit like you know if you wanted to learn karate okay after a few days you might look like you can do karate but put you in a fight with somebody who really is good at karate then you, you know it'll really test you it's sort of wheat from the chaff and i think it's the same with the circular design or circular economy expertise yeah, it all seems to make sense in theory, but then when you start applying it, you start to work out, you know, somebody, I was at an event today and somebody was talking about, you know, how making something more durable was more circular. And I was saying, but if you make something that can last 30, 40 years and the owner wants to bin it in five, then actually it's wasteful. You know, all those resources could be used in something else. Maybe, and I'm not saying it is, but maybe it's better to design something that just lasts five years and design it in such a way so that all the components can be taken out and all the materials can be taken out and can be used for something else after five years. So mm -hmm. I think, you know, the knee-jerk reaction that a lot of us have to sustainability don't fit in the circular economy world. Um, and I do think it's, it's practice. Um, and that's when you really it's when you see somebody who's really been spending their time thinking about this deeply and you compare them to somebody who he's only just started on that journey you do see a huge difference in the level of understanding and understanding of the nuance involved in it that's what I would say because it is quite nuanced and like I said it's like with sustainability it's not you can't ask is this sustainable it's like is this more sustainable than this? It's only when you compare two choices can you make a judgment. Based on the timeline that we have and time running out in general, is, is there enough time? I would think the answer to that question isn't useful. Okay. Because just live your life. Do the best you can. Live it as full as you can. Um, like, for instance, we still take one family flight a year because a holiday abroad is important to us and I'm not willing to sacrifice it, even though I know that flying is horrendously damaging. But, you know, if if, if the end is nigh, <laughs> I want to have a good life. And so I think that people should just live the life that they want to live and do the best they can and push for change and then forget about it. Let mm -hmm. go of the end result. Mm -hmm. You don't have any control over it. So, um, and I'm quite a realistic, slightly pessimistic person. So um, my feeling is probably there isn't enough time. But I've been wrong about so many things in the past. So I'm really happy for this to be something else that I'm wrong about. Because humans are, can be amazing when they put their mind to things. So it just, it's, it's whether, and actually the coral reefs 
are recovering better than they expected. And I read an article to say that 80% of the carbon emitted from the fires in Australia in 2019, 2020 have been, were absorbed by algae blooms in the ocean. Now I know algae blooms aren't good because they can kill fish, but you know, we don't quite understand all of the natural systems in the world. We just have to do our bit of producing as little carbon as possible. Um, and there's a lot of work being done on carbon capture and who's to say that that won't accelerate. And, you know, then it does seem that when the natural systems are supported, that they do bounce back quicker than the scientists had, had been expecting. And so that's really good news. So, you know, I, I'm hoping I'm wrong and we're just living our life as best as we can and trying not to expose ourselves to too much depressing news about oil spills and you know, increased temperatures because we're doing all we can in our lives. And if other people are doing all they can in their lives, then I think it sort of gives you a pass not to worry about it. <laughs> so just live a good life as much as you can and do your best. Yes, and keep moving forward. And I did see something recently talking about politicians there's no professor did in philadelphia i believe talking an example with politicians and predicting predicting you know the future what this will happen i think i believe it i believe it might have been in the economy but predicting oh this if we do this this will happen versus someone that just guessed what an outcome would be and it had no it didn't matter if they had done any studies or anything like that is it was just all up to it's random future. i mean this is the thing humans like to believe that we have insight and that we have um you know we're, we're able to predict things more than we can and sometimes like i i'm a firm believer in science and i think it has added an awful lot to our understanding of the world but it depends on what you're looking at i mean i've heard that about economies that when they've looked at the predictions of economists versus a to a, the toss of a coin that actually the economists have fared worse than the, than the toss of a coin and so i think predicting things is very very tricky um i mean that's you know, people i suppose who are climate science deniers will say that you know how can we be sure that climate change is going to have this impact on us because we're predicting something in the future we don't really know what's going to happen um, and, you know, they may be right, but I would argue that, you know, if you're in a room with 100 doctors, 99 of them are telling you that you have this disease, which can be remedied by doing X, but one says, no, you're fine, you're grand, off you go. Like, would you just do the remedy? And the remedy might be to drink a liquid and it's like not that bad tasting and it's a once off, you know, it's not like I know living sustainably for some people sounds horrendous like cutting down on meat but you know we're not asking people to cut off their left leg you know <laughs> I live sustainably as sustainably as I can and actually it's totally doable so, okay there's certain things that I can't do because the infrastructure is not here in Ireland you know I probably shouldn't drive as much as I do and I'm limited we don't have solar panels on the roof of our house there's certain things that we probably would do if with more government support for it but living sustainably is really doable and I don't really I do feel for people who've invested their life 
in areas of living that are now being targeted as being unsustainable, like being a beef farmer or a dairy farmer. Like I really feel for those people, like they're the ones I have. They deserve our sympathy because they've been sold a pup by previous governments and by their the farming associations saying, oh, this is all nonsense. Don't pay any attention to them. We'll make sure it doesn't happen. You know, just put kicking the can down the road and then they'll all disappear now and leave the farmer to hold the can um, because they just didn't want to tell them what they didn't want to hear. So there are some people like I do really feel for um, who are going to have to change their lives quite dramatically. But for the rest of us, right, eating more plants. Oh, my God, get over yourself. Do you know if that's such a struggle for you? Think about all the people who live on the ocean line who might not have a home to live in in the future. So um, I think that the remedy is not as bad for most people um, versus what could be coming down the line. And I love that phrase. And I said, you know, like, imagine if the scientists are wrong and we make these, we clean up our rivers and we clean our air and we grow more trees and we protect nature more. Imagine if we do that all in vain. And we just seem crazy that we need a reason, like we need extinction to be the reason that we start our environment for our own health, you know. And with biodiversity, that is very clear that the decline is massive. And so in that, there's no argument. And when it comes to human extinction, climate change or the climate crisis, and it's not like climate change is normal and natural it's the extent of it that's normal that's why it's called climate crisis or climate emergency now but that is a threat to human extinction but biodiversity loss is actually a bigger threat and that's something that people are seeing in their gardens and in their areas every day so even if they weren't buying into the whole carbon emissions type of thing then look at you know supporting biodiversity in your community and if you, even if that's all you do that's a really good thing to do it's um interesting that the catalyst is the mention of our extinction versus other species plants extinctions and i don't think that message gets through a lot to people they're aware of the extinction of uh, animals and insects um, and birds and things like that but there's less talk that like we are part of the natural world and 80% of crops and commercial cultivation are pollinated by insects. And I don't know like about you, but there's a huge drop in the amount of insects around here. Um, and so if those crops don't get pollinated, that means crop failure. I mean, that means no food. You know, you don't need to be a rocket scientist to put two and two together. So it's in our interest to trust the scientists, even if they're wrong. You know, I mean, it's like, um, I always feel I think it's a bit like, you know, I don't know if you have it in, England, in, in America as well, but we have um, some Jehovah Witnesses that go door to door here trying to convert us. And I often think the climate scientists are a bit like that. Like they're going door to door trying to save our souls. And we're going, that's fine. We don't need our souls saved. You know, it seems like a bit like that. It's like, we're fine. Biodiversity loss isn't a big deal. The climate crisis isn't a big deal. You know, thanks for your concern. You know, <laughs> I always think it's in the same camp. We're just put our heads in the sand. But, you know, sustainable living is so easy. I just don't understand why people are so distant. You know, but 
I think with the circular economy might offer an option for people to be sustainable without actually making any effort themselves. And I think that that's probably what we need now because I've given up on people trying to live more sustainably. So few people doing it. Or they'll do it in one area. They buy secondhand clothes, but they buy twice as many clothes as they did before. And they buy it to go on a weekend trip, you know, somewhere their fifth of the year. You know, it's Mm -hmm. just there's some really brilliant people doing a lot. And then there's everyone else (laughs) who aren't doing much. So the circular economy is hopefully one route to making the rest live more sustainably um, against their will. (laughs) (laughs) That's excellent. (laughs) And in your program, you designed or redesigned a sofa. That's what you specifically yeah, focused that's what I looked on. at. I decided to, yeah, yeah, to do furniture because that was my background. So it made more sense for me to do that than other areas. I appreciate that you mentioned about even just a company that is taking in or doing a buy uh, buyback or taking donations and then selling. And it's more about, doesn't matter. I shouldn't say it doesn't matter. It doesn't it isn't beneficial if someone is just then thinking, oh, well, the it's changing, it's fall. Great, I'll go get an orange couch now that it's, you know, 50% off. Yeah, it, and- it may not. And this is the thing. It's, you know, devil's in the detail. You have to look at the impact, which is why we do need more studies and research into the actual impact. It's a bit like Airbnb. You know, in theory, that's great people get access to affordable accommodation and people are able to maximize the use of these buildings around the world. But actually the effect has been that it has taken money from hotels, which are regulated, and it's led to a lot of properties being taken off the rental market because it's, you know, more money is made through Airbnb. And so it's actually had a very negative impact on society. Um, and so and then, you know, because it's challenging the hotels, which may lose money and may close and put people out of work, then you've got more people who need to be supported to social welfare. And so it really is having a very negative long term effect on society. So I think with everything you just have to when you implement something new, a new disruptive business model, you have to you have to monitor it and you have to assess it and report on it. Um, so my concept for a sofa, um, I looked at how people were using their sofas and what people wanted from their sofas. And I designed back from that. So people were generally disposing of their sofas because for a number of reasons, one of the main reasons were that they needed to be repaired and people kept reporting. It's interesting. I did an observation at a a disposal day uh, and I had done surveys. And it's funny when you were there and doing an observation, People were telling me, oh, well, it's broken. You know, I need to dispose of it, it's broken. And I was looking at these sofas and thinking they're not broken. It's just their upholstery is worn or the leg is slightly at an angle. That's totally repairable. But it's so in their mind, it was broken. And that's the thing when people, if you design a system based on what people tell you they need, you often don't get a good system. You have to really drill down and as a designer, observe it and make sure that you're a, you're getting to the crux of why things are really happening, not why you're being told they're happening. So repair was one thing and access to repair services, you know, affordable, trustworthy. That was a big thing. 
not knowing somebody, not knowing that it was going to be good because you're relying on this person to deliver something of quality and you've no control over it. You know, it's not like you went to a shop and you see it finished and you can look at it. You're just trusting this person is going to do a good job. And then the other thing was people dispose of sofas because they, um, their circumstances had changed. And so they moved from house and the old sofa didn't suit the new sofa or the family had gotten bigger, the family had gotten smaller. And then lastly, they wanted to change. You buy a sofa like in the 80s, a sofa in the 80s is generally not going to look stylish in a modern interior, unless you're really into the 80s style. I know that's closed, but it hasn't come back in interiors in a big way. And people said, you know, when they were disposing of something that was workable, that was, you know, still functional um, and it wasn't a size issue, they'd say, well, I've had it 10, 15 years. I think I'm due a new one. And there was this sense of, I deserve a new sofa. So I think when you know that they are the drivers of the consumption, the disposal of sofas and the consumption of new sofas, then there's no point in designing a long lasting sofa. And there's no point in designing a sofa that's easy to repair by professional repairers, if there's no professional repairers. So my concept was for a sofa that was easy to repair by the sofa owner. You know, it was um, using readily available tools and you could get the kit sent out to you. It was also, it could be converted, converted from a two-seater to a three-seater to a corner and back again, very easily by the person who owned it. You know, it was very straightforward. And then it was designed so that different elements last different lengths of time because the frame of a sofa can last 30, 40, 50 years. But... You don't really want upholstery that's been used 30, 40, 50 years. So I separated out what I call the skin from the frame. So if you were finished with your sofa, now if I knew you, I'd probably take it and be happy to use it as is. But let's say I bought it off some um, online marketplace from somebody I didn't know. And I don't want to be sitting on the upholstery that they were on. And so I was separated out that skin from the frame. So you could take the skin off. And in theory, so this was all sort of showcasing what's possible, even though currently not viable, that you could send that skin back to the company or deposit it in a recycling centre and the company would send you out a replacement, which you could put on yourself. So the sofa is designed so that you just slip this on and fix it into place using snap buttons or whatever. Um, and so basically you have, you're reusing a frame you have parts that you can replace as you need. So I took out springs and I used slats, you know, like you get in a futon. Um, because an awful lot of the softness in sofas now is achieved through foam cushions. You don't need springs on a lot of sofas now. Um, and, so, and then it's, it sits within a service where you can also pay for repair services if you want. There's a take back option. There was an online marketplace where people could resell. Like, as I said, this is all theoretical but the whole idea of it was to show furniture makers that in the future we'll be designing a system that looks at how furniture is bought used shared and disposed of so the whole system and there's points along the way where companies can make profit and either they themselves or another party so you could have third party repair people or the original manufacturer might have their own repair people 
or they might have licensed repair people who pay them a certain amount of money to be able to say that they're trained to repair that particular thing, which you get with real high-end furniture. You know, Aircall is a brand of furniture in the UK, and so you can get your Aircall furniture repaired by approved repair companies. So that's what I looked at with the sofa. Um, and I, it's funny, since I did that design, and actually just as I was finishing off my thesis, a few companies came out with a modular convertible sofa. Now, not all the elements I had and not a take back scheme or repair scheme, but now you can buy a sofa in a box that comes to you almost through the post. And like none of that existed when I was doing my research, it just I discovered it. So you can see there's zeitgeist, you know, people are starting to think about this because it does reduce the carbon footprint from um, transportation if you can send it in a modular format. And when it's modular, in theory, you can send replacement parts. If you damage the arm, it can just post you out a new arm. So I think um, it's, again, it's a different way of looking at something. If I had just tried to make an existing sofa more sustainable, I probably would have made a sofa that was easier to reupholster. But that wouldn't have been working back from what, the way customers interact with it and what they want and then serving those needs. And so that's really where the skill of a designer comes in is working out the root cause behind certain behavior and appealing to that rather than the behavior that results from it. Right, that transformation of the couch specifically as families change and spaces change maybe making it more adaptable for that right instead of the aesthetic um upholstery or um yeah it would wearing also, down in general if somebody wanted to change like because it's designed to be modular and easier to move and easier to repair and upgrade there's a market for it secondhand whereas if somebody did just want to change their sofa after five years because they're tired of it it's really hard to transport it to somebody else and it's really hard to rehome it or resell it. So making something that is desirable as a secondhand item and having a system that will provide you with parts if it needs to be repaired, provide you with um, a, a second upholstery that you can apply yourself, it generates a market for this, a secondhand market, which you don't currently have with traditional sofas. So um so even if it's somebody just wanting to change it after five years because they're just bored of it, it's still setting up um, a marketplace that makes that less damaging. We don't want that behavior, but there'll always be people who engage in it. In just researching, you know, questions asked, you were looking at the circular economy in general for my own personal um, information. And I have looked at the Ellen MacArthur Foundation website, which has been um, informative. It's it, it kind of just makes sense. <laughs> it does. And actually, you do sort of wonder. And you know what? We did it. You know, in the 50s in Ireland, I don't know, it might have been earlier in America, but in the 50s, this is how we operated. And I mean, people did keep their sofas for 30, 40 years. And so there was a, less of a need for this. But I mean, if somebody, uh, you know, didn't want a sideboard, that sideboard, if it wasn't bought by somebody else it was broken down and all the timber was reused the idea of i think one of the issues is the cost of labor now you see as labor increases in cost 
in overdeveloped countries, then it doesn't make sense to reuse materials because materials are so cheap. And that's why a lot of the legislation coming down the track from Europe in relation to circular economy, you know, they're talking about switching away from income tax onto material tax. And so mm. it would be cheaper to get, you know, it'd be less expensive. I hate the word cheap, but it'd be less expensive for someone to invest human hours in rescuing material than it would and currently it is. And so, and I know there's some states in America that don't have income tax that they tax. Uh, I think it's, they, they get it, I think in Texas, it's on oil. It's how they get the tax, because you need a certain amount of tax to run your state or your country. So, but it doesn't have to be on income. It's just, that's what's happened in the past. And I think with the circular economy, that you do need that legislative change to, to ease the transition towards circular economy, which is generally more labor intensive at this stage, but then who's to say that in the future we won't have designs that can be disassembled by robots and therefore like and then that's a whole different argument about the living wage and and do the best that yeah. we can now so that we have a future. That's really what it comes down to. And then we can deal with the issues of the robots taking our jobs in that future. Right. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Elaine, for being my guest again. It's been a real pleasure to have you back on. Well, I've really enjoyed it. It's always great to chat to you, Claire. And yeah, this is my pulpit, the circular economy. So anyone who wants to talk to me about it, <laughs> I'm really happy to chat, but it's really good. So thanks so much for having me on again. I want to thank Elaine again for being my guest. And I will have links to the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, along with some other resources for those of you that want to do some more research on the circular economy. And Elaine's handle on Instagram is living lightly in Ireland. And an update for Green Living Podcast Season 2, I will be releasing podcasts as I am able to record them instead of every other Tuesday. If you follow me at Green Living Pod on Instagram, I will be giving more information about what upcoming podcast episodes will be coming out. Thank you so much for listening. And if you have any ideas, topics, or people that you would like to hear on the podcast, please just message me over Instagram and I will do my best to get them on. Thank you so much for listening.